0: Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Works of art are silent. Poetry speaks its mind. Painting is mute poetry. Poetry a speaking picture. Beginning with classical writers, poet and literary critic John Hollander explains that art and literature have developed a wide variety of relationships over the course of 2,000 years. In this lecture, recorded on November 4, 2001, at the National Gallery of Art, Hollander specifically explores the ekphrastic relationship between a particular work of visual art or architecture and a particular poem. The word ekphrastic comes from the Greek ek and phrasis, meaning out and speak, respectively, to give voice to the silent work of art by speaking for it, out of it, or in so many ways, to it. Hollander distinguishes between actual and notional ekphrases, invocations of actual works of art versus speaking of fictional works that exist only in description. He then reads from works by very different contemporary poets and connects them with corresponding works of art that the poems had in mind or in view.
1: Works of art are silent. Poetry speaks its mind. So, at any rate, goes an old classical tag attributed to Simonides, which became generally known in the Renaissance as... Poetry is a speaking picture. Pictures are mute or silent poetry. The Roman poet Horace's even more celebrated observation that ut pictura poesis, poetry is like painting, became widely used as an unspecified likening, which meant in one sense that the ways in which they were alike were arbitrary. What was generally agreed, though, was that a classical notion of something like what we would call vividness characterized both representing in visual images and describing or narrating words. But visual art takes its place in space and poetic art, like music, in time. It wasn't until the 18th century that Gotthold Ephraim Lessing, in his famous essay on the Hellenistic Laocoon group, which depicts a moment described in Virgil's Aeneid, brilliantly reminded everyone of the profound consequences of this fact and warned about analogies that neglected the space-time matter. And yet art and literature have, over the course of 2,000 years, developed a wide variety of relationships. And it's one of these in particular that I want to explore some of this afternoon. It's the connection, or really the group of connections, manifested in the confrontation of a particular work of art by a particular poem. Such poems as indeed similar passages of prose in the course of a work of fiction are usually called ekphrastic. This afternoon, I'll be reading aloud some short poems by very different contemporary poets, and at the same time, showing slides of the works of art the poems in question have in mind or in some kind of view. And I shall end with three poems, two short and one somewhat longer of my own. The word ekphrasis is used today both in a narrower sense to mean the literary description of a work of art, usually employing considerable rhetorical skill, and also in a broader sense to designate entire poems or passages from longer works of fiction, poetry, or expository essay, which address in various ways particular works of painting, sculpture, graphic art, or perhaps even architecture. In Hellenistic times, the word ekphrasis was also sometimes used to characterize particularly vivid description of any kind, including actual scenes as well. It derives from the Greek verb literally to speak out or tell or describe fully, and an ekphrastic poem can in some way try to give voice to the silent painting or print or sculpture by speaking for it or perhaps purportedly out of it or in so many ways, to it. In any event, it's important to distinguish between invocations of actual particular works of art and a far older tradition of describing purely fictional ones, images that exist only in their descriptions. Homer's famous account in the Iliad of the Shield of Achilles, as it was made by Hephaestus, and of that of Heracles in a shorter poem of Hesiods that is roughly contemporary with it. There are ecrastic passages in Theocritus, Virgil, Ovid, Greek prose romances, in Dante's Purgatorio, Chaucer's The House of Fame and the Knight's Tale, Ariosto's Orlando Furioso, Shakespeare's The Rape of Lucrece, and Book Three of Spencer's The Fairy Queen, for example, just up through that point, through 1600. All these contain elaborate and significant ecrastic moments in which the reading or interpretation of a painted or carved image by a fictional character is frequently a crucial crucial matter for the narrative. We can consider this contrast between actual and notional ekphrasis, which is this kind I've just mentioned, uh, in two short poems by the same poet. Herman Melville wrote a wonderful book of verse about the Civil War published in 1865 called Battle Pieces, The very first poem, entitled The Portent, is about the hanging of John Brown in 1859, before the war, but leading to it. It presents a notional picture, both clear and visionary, but describes no actual one. The opening lines might or might not be thought of, as you'll hear, as referring to an actual wood engraving or photograph of the scene of Brown's hanging in 1859, yet they come from none. The first stanza goes, Hanging from the beam, slowly swaying, such the law. Gaunt the shadow on your green Shenandoah. The cut is on the crown, lo, John Brown, and the stabs shall heal no more. The image is of the swinging shadow of the hanged man on the living, moving surface of the river, to us now, it seems to anticipate what will become in 20th century a cliched film shot. But in the second stanza, the issue of what can be seen in the notional picture becomes central, and with it what must be inferred from its mute prophecy. The figure's screaming beard is linked with what was formerly thought to be the ominous prophetic character of meteors and comets. The word comet means bearded star Hidden in the cap is the anguish none can draw. So your future veils its face, Shenandoah. But the streaming beard is shown, weird, John Brown, the meteor of the war. The assertion here is that no drawing or photograph, not even this putative one, could show the anguish in the face, even if that face were unhooded. This is a turn on an old convention. As far back as as the Renaissance, portraits were praised for being able to render visible just such emotions and moral abstractions within the sitter rather than to render the visible expression of them by a person. But the otherwise strange, ineptly passive voice diction of the phrase, the streaming beard is shown, makes sense only as the language of practical actresses You can't see X in the picture, but Y is shown. This is the way we talk all the time. Yet the artist doing the showing, the drawing, is ultimately the poet himself, acting as the power that makes manifest a prophetic historical moment. And from the point of view of prophecy, the meanings of historical moments themselves are always shrouded. But Melville uses the phrase is shown in the same way in another telling short poem later on in Battle Pieces. This time it's for an actual actresses of the kind we shall be considering today. This poem is entitled Formerly a Slave. It comes from an exhibition catalog. uh, The title of a painting by the American Elihu Vedder called Jane Jackson, Formerly a Slave, That Melville had seen when it was first exhibited at the National Academy of Design in 1865. The sitter was an old woman who sold peanuts on Broadway and whom Vedder apparently often encountered. She had been a slave down south and had at the time a son fighting in the Union Army. Melville's poem seems slight at first, but it develops a complex and powerful metaphor in the third and final stanza, which, as will be heard, picks up the significance of the word prophetic in the second one. Formerly a slave, an idealized portrait by E. Vedder in the spring exhibition of the National Academy, 1865, is the subtitle. The sufferance of her race is shown, and retrospective life, which now too late deliverance dawns upon. Yet she is not at strife. Her children's children, they shall know the good withheld from her, and so her reverie takes prophetic cheer. In spirit, she sees the stir far down the depths of thousand years and marks the revel shine. Her dusky face is lit with sober light, sibling yet benign. The poem sees her as acting in spirit, excuse me, the poem sees her as seeing in spirit the consequences of emancipation and the war. Yet it is not so much Jane Jackson plucked up from Broadway to pose in Vedder's studio, but the mythologized image that the poem reads into the portrait, uh, the image who figuratively sees a redeemed future. Robert Penn Warren wrote pointedly of this stanza. As the slave woman has been an outsider looking in at the revel of the privileged whites. So now, as she looks into the future, she is still an outsider, though a benign one, to the imagined revel of her own descendants. One may also notice the reinforcement of the two modes of seeing, literal and figurative, by the two senses in the poem of the phrase lit with sober light. This light is both literally a description of the light falling on the face in the shadowy painting and figuratively the soberly radiant light of her countenance, as it were. 20th century poetry, particularly subsequent to W.H. Auden's extremely influential poem, Musée des Beaux-Arts, in 1938, uh, have explored various modes of confronting works of art, revealing awareness of formal and art historical concerns, and even of the medium of paint itself, that nothing pretty much before then would have done. We might as well start out this afternoon with Richard Wilbur's poem called A Dutch Courtyard. Firstly, because it addresses a painting right here in the National Gallery by Peter de Hoogh, but also because it raises, and in a somewhat playful way, one of the central questions of ecrastic poetry, namely that of the intransigence of the work of art, both under the gaze of the observer and, by extension, under the vain attempts of poetic language to move it literally or figuratively in any way. De Hooch's painting shows a courtyard of a house in Delft. That city's celebrated Kerk, the new church, is visible in the background, where two men are sharing a drink with a young woman serving them. She's drinking from what was called a pass glass, made with rings at various levels in the glass to mark out equal portions. That's for passing a glass around so everybody could drink from it and everybody get an equal amount. Among things about the painting that may have been that have been noted in the past are the wonderful placement of the young girl carrying the coals to the men to light their pipes with. She's almost... Photographically caught just at the meeting point of the house and the far wall facing us, as if, as one critic suggested, to moderate the perspective. But I think you'll conclude that she's doing all sorts of other things by being placed just there. Prominent also is the contrast between the rational structures of building and domestic space and the unplanned energy of nature, here seen in the foliage visible up above the buildings and the lively patterns of discoloration of the bricks on the wall and underfoot. De Hooch loved to paint these, uh, perhaps, or perhaps not only because his father had been a bricklayer. And he must have thought a lot about that when young. Wilbur's poem plays, as you'll hear, on the words proper and propriety in their original Latin senses of one's own special particular that lie behind our modern ones. And the poem also takes note, you'll see, of the matter of provenance, of the history of ownership of the painting, as if that history somehow adhered to it. In this case, the last private owner who gave it, even as he endowed this very gallery originally, somehow stands for all viewers frustrated in their desire to enter the world of the picture itself. Except that Mr. Mellon, as we'll see, was in a position to acquire it in one way, what he could not in another. A Dutch Courtyard by Richard Wilbur, who just recently celebrated his 80th birthday, by the way. What wholly blameless fun to stand and look at pictures. Ah, they're immune to us. This courtyard may appear to be consumed with sun, most morally to burn, Yet it is quite beyond the reach of eyes or thoughts. Its place and moment oxidize. This girl will never turn, cry what you dare, and smiles tirelessly toward the seated cavalier who will not proffer you his pint of beer. And your most lavish wiles can never turn this chair to proper uses, nor your guile evict these tenants." what surprising strict propriety. In despair, consumed with greedy ire, old Andrew Mellon glowered at this Dutch courtyard until it bothered him so much he bought the thing entire. As viewers of the painting, or Richard Wilbur's poet contemplating it, we are consumed with less than greedy ire. Rather, perhaps, we share a sense of amused or even delighted frustration at the power and beauty of the scene's perfect recalcitrance to our desire to enter or in otherwise to possess it. Eugène Delacroix's Watercolor Conversation Moresque, Moorish Conversation, is quite small, uh, something like five, uh, not quite six by a little over seven inches Uh, it's in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. It exists also in a preliminary drawing. It's one of 18 watercolors begun in Tangier in 1832 as a souvenir series for the Count de Monet. Delacroix was assaulted by the vividness of his Moroccan impressions. He noted in his journal uh, for 1832 that, It would take 20 arms and 48 hours to give an idea of the strangeness of the life he felt swirling around him. One critic remarks that it painting recalls Bonington in its its compression of so much graphic and chromatic incident in so small a space. Yes, but what kind of incident for the poet, the maker of fictions? The poet, Richard Howard, has written more ecrastic poems given his very long series on photographs by Nadar in two of his books, than anyone of his poetic generation. And he characteristically looks for a narrative in every scene depicted. There's clearly none, so he makes it up. In this case, by inventing for the female member of the couple a notional husband, whom he calls Mustapha, as you'll see. This is the kind of poem which speaks for one of the persons in the picture. Here, it is the young woman. Uh, In a fine long poem on Caspar David Friedrich's well-known painting of the chalk cliffs of Rüden, he turns the three figures in the scene into characters in a romantic novel, a sort of pocket version of Goethe's elective affinities, even though he knows well that these figures have been identified by art historians as actual persons. Howard is particularly interested, in this case, in making something of the barely visible figure on the roof of the building on the left, Uh, The word lukum, by the way, is candy of the kind we call Turkish delight. Howard's dramatic monologue is framed in five stanzas, each of 13 unrhymed lines, seven of seven syllables, six of nine and six of ten, which you can't hear on the reading, but it, it makes the poem very, very highly wrought. So... Eugène Delacroix, Moorish Conversation, 1832. Don't look now. I said, don't look. I'll tell you when you can look. Just lie back as if we were, well, as if we were talking. Try to behave as if we were by ourselves. That's why I brought you here in the first place. The trouble with these rooftop refuges the one place in Tangier, you can see a touch of green, something alive besides men and camels. The trouble is there's always a roof higher than the one you're on, a man looking down, watching. Why bother getting comfortable if someone's? In any case, I'd never dream of dragging my best Bokhara out here. This old Arda beetle is lovely still, they never lose there. The colors are fixed by making the camels piss all over them, then washing them out in the canal. Harsh treatment, you think, but it works. "'Look at me. "'All the suppler for the way I've been manhandled, "'you must admit. "'Now look, you see what I mean? "'That's a man up there, standing where he can. "'No, not Mustafa. "'Someone he's put up there to spy on us. "'On me. "'What does it matter to him "'whether I'm up here with you or one of the bath women? "'He has to know, that's all. "'It affords him some kind of gratification, "'more than he gets from anything he ever does with me.' Try some of this. She put the rose petals in just this morning. It tastes really fresh. Oh, now I see. That person is nothing like Mustafa's usual parasites. One thing I do have is a good memory for men's bodies. You must have noticed him, a sharp-faced foreign devil, always lurking somewhere and staring so. He takes it all in as if life were the scene of the crime, even the pair of us harmless enough on these irreproachable hassocks. Look, I know he's the one crouching with a notebook in his artful hands. He's put us in his picture. As far as art goes, and art such as his goes far enough for spying, you don't suppose Mustafa sold rights to the roof. We incarnate your typical tangerine darlings. Can't you just hear the giddy little screams once he returns to his studio? My dear, how positively classical. Never mind, he's leaving now. Some more fresh lucum? The tea is still warm, and so am I. Do just as you like. Mustafa might as well be blind. The figure being discussed turns out not to be a spy, of course. Rather, the whole action of the poem is to reveal him to be a specter of some lurking delacroix. Howard's comic fuss over a small watercolor is exemplary of a kind of poem which clearly subverts or undoes an equally clear pictorial intention. It's a high and somewhat subtle ectrastic mode of dual complicity, first with the spirit behind the most ignorant and dismissive of crude jokes about a work of art, and second with the highest connoisseurships making jokes about what it knows. Uh, There may, I must confess, indeed have been some poetic license taken here in that the Central Asian tribal rugs, which would, would not have been called Bokhara from the city from which they were shipped to Europe at that time, and that the carpet on which Delacour's pair, if not Howard's, are taking their illicit ease is not an Ardabil, a name only in use since 1950 for meshed Iranian rugs, in any case, but let that pass. <laughs> Edward Hopper's etching of 1921, also represented in the National Gallery's collection, is fairly early. You may note the somewhat puddingy right hand, for example. It's entitled Evening Wind, and it's somewhat anecdotal to the degree that we can conclude that it's obviously been a very hot day And the girl on the bed may simply be facing into the breeze for sheer pleasure in a pre air conditioned and even unfanned world. The wind is a ghostly presence on the scene, and we know it to be there only from the window curtains blown into the room. This was a motif which first fascinated in 1845 the German painter Adolf Menzel in a painting of a room with a balcony, which is quite remarkable. Uh, the late James Merrill, in a poem in which a standing-framed mirror addresses an open window across the room from it, touches on this matter, too, when the mirror refers to all the in-streaming muslin of your dream, that is, the window dream. The California poet, now temporarily living in Washington, Robert Mezzi, has a fine sonnet on this etching, with the same title. The very mode of his poem reminds us that the sonnet form has framed poetic addresses to painting since the Renaissance, almost as if its rectangular shape on the page mirrored the squarish format of a picture. One foot on the floor, one knee in bed, bent forward in both hands as if to leap into a heaven of silken cloud or keep an old appointment. Trist, one almost said. Some promise, some entanglement that led in broad daylight to privacy and sleep, to dreams of love, to rapture of the deep, oh, everything that must be left unsaid. Why, then, does she suddenly look aside at a white window full of empty space and curtains swaying inward? Does she sense in darkening air the vast indifference that enters in and will not be denied to breathe unseen upon her nakedness. Note how in Mezzi's sonnet, the white window full of empty space is indeed only so, that is, white and void, in the engraving. But the imaginative strategy that is, of dealing with a depicted girl momentarily as if she were looking into the same area in the print we are, but of course she is part of the print, is a compelling one. The poem's resonant phrase, everything that must be left unsaid, rhymes audaciously with one almost said four lines earlier. It points to the picture's total silence and its ad hoc leaving unsaid, untold, any specific narrative and at the same time to the poem's <coughs> inability to leave any final ultimate truth about the picture anything but unsaid poets and art historians have widely differing and mostly antithetical agendas knowledge about a work of art the circumstances of its production all the conventions within in which it operates its function its various relations to other works, iconographic, symbolic references in it, and so forth. This is all for the art historian verifiable knowledge of the painting. The poet, however, seeks to discover a meaning by having, of course, invented it in the work of art, getting it to speak its mind, just as he or she will elicit signification from bits of urban or rural nature, or any of the givens of experience. (laughs) A poetic actresses can't be right or wrong. We can only observe what information it may ignore, suppress, or most often remain unmindful of. There are not too many instances in which a poet will write knowingly of a painting in a way that is responsible to the procedures of a field of academic study, and, wearing another hat, write a poem to or on or out of it. Let's consider one case I find interesting. Jan van Girl asleep at a table is remarkable among the masters' paintings for the opening up of the primary space. It gives us an available glimpse through a partly open door of a corridor on an empty room on the facing wall of which hangs what may be dimly construed as a mirror. Equally dim is visible the lower corner of a picture hanging behind her, and showing a figure of Cupid treading on a mask. Its emblematic significance for this painting may be, as Lawrence Gowing once suggested, that sleep is revealed as the dropping of a mask, uncovering the fantasy which is the sleeper's secret, a fantasy, we may guess, of love. Vermeer's paintings are usually full of wonderful occlusions of deep space and barriers to the journey inward of the scanning eye. Here he has somewhat mysteriously associated the sleeping, if not the dreaming young woman, and the partly revealed room with its unreadable mirror behind her. Edward Snow, in his commentary on this painting, uh, put it that this opening can be read as an extension of the girl's reverie, a metaphor for her, her half-openness, half or the destination toward which our projected viewing tends. Snow also observes of the lion's head finials on the chair that appears in several other of Lemaire's interiors, that they are pushed forward and turned away from the girl, to become sentinels of her space rather than secret or menacing onlookers, the girl was called in a 17th-century sale catalog, uh, "Entrancs lapid meruntala," a drunken sleeping girl at a table, and various art historians have variously declared her to be grieving over disappointment in love or to be a figure of idleness. It was only in 1972 that, too, that X-ray images of the painting revealed that Vermeer had originally placed a dog in the doorway, heading into the back room, where there had also been a standing man. His hat had been where a mirror that replaced the male figure, can now be seen. One art historian, <coughs> particularly interested in the whole question, <coughs> excuse me, of what we can see in adjacent rooms in Dutch paintings observed that the dogs being replaced by the back of the chair with those lion head finials retained some reference to animal life as if reflecting an alternative, an alternative consciousness to that of the girl. That artist, historian is in fact a poet as well, and five years after publishing the article, a phrase of which I just quoted, she wrote a poem on the painting. In this case, we may ask whether or not there was a, ki- a, a kind of intellectual insider training, trading at work. It will be clear. I think that the you in the last stanza is the viewer, not the sleeping girl. Uh, the poem is called Fermer's girl asleep at a table by Martha Hollander. Uh, with an epigraph until the end of the 17th century, no one was ever left alone from Philippe Aries. The house is humming with many lives today, too drowsy even for a slice of apple or her own glass of wine. She prepares to dream of nothing, to dream her life away. What kind of life? The man in the next room whose dandyish red coat and jaunty hat fail to mask his eager hesitation? The dog who lopes toward him, hoping for food, a pat, or a walk? These usual companions whose loving negotiation colors the day are for x-rays only, part of the painting's dream. The picture waits for him, standing guard over his fallen glass. The carpet rises like a wave agitated into complex patterns of desire. The chair sails off towards somewhere else entirely, where its gilded lion's heads, twin commanders of the animal realm, a calling out for him. But I'm still here, believe me, and I'm ready. If she woke up and saw you, she would say, go away until I'm finished. Careful, I know. The closer you get, the more the mirror threatens to drown you in its gray syrup, suspended in a frame of a frame of a frame, as the world of I and you and they and we dissolves into a membrane riddled with light. The poet here almost inevitably focuses on the absent man (coughs) whose traces subtend the painting like an erotic repression. He is a figure of paradoxical indeterminacy, of eager hesitation, as the poem says. The poet's own imagination is in its its way doubling for the technology of the uh, X-ray here. It summons up the voice of the cancelled or erased presence and of the sexual agenda that lies far beyond certified emblematic iconography. It celebrates indeterminacies instead of documented facts and returns at the end to primary visual experience and epistemological morals about that experience elicited from it by meditation. Another unusual situation arises when the poet is or has been a painter, him or herself. Among my contemporaries, for example, Mark Strand and Donald Justice were both trained artists. There have also been artists we know who wrote poetry. <clears throat> Famous instances are those of Michelangelo, William Blake, and Turner, <clears throat> and in 19th century America, Washington Allston and Thomas Cole, both of whom wrote some very good poems. It's not surprising, then, that uh, the poet Rosanna Warren, uh, who majored in painting as an undergraduate at Yale before becoming a poet and literary scholar, it's not surprising that she should have written a poem on a canvas by so very painterly an artist as Bonnard, a painting she had frequently seen in the Yale Art Gallery when she was an undergraduate and came to write about only a year ago. Uh, Bonnard often painted his wife bathing. Uh, This canvas, it was called Interior at Le Canet in 1938, shows her emerging from a bathtub in a space defined by an external scene behind it and another brighter room occupying most of the picture space. Indeed, her poem is simply entitled with the artist's name, Bonnard as if it reported a confrontation with a whole way of painting. The one question it asks towards the opening is about Madame Bonal inferred from a trace of her in the painting, the left arm and hand of a figure facing forward but blocked by the brightly lit mirrored wall. It's not an inquiry into the picture's possible narrative but of of another sort of compositional and structural story, Acutely non-narrative in the usual sense, the story of what holds the painting together. You'll notice in the poems I read it the concern with palpable texture, and even with taste toward the end. The French word confiture means jam. Warren's poem abandons all mimetic concerns save for its own, even as it speaks literally and allegorically at once when it says, "So many mirrors, you'd think would give a point of view." They don't. Bonne. It's like this. Three large slices of world split into smaller, pulpy fistfuls of world within each world slice, and it all hurts, so debonair, so juicy. Where is the woman, after all, the center of this story? Well, we are mistaken. The center is a pillar of wrong light gone smooshed and overripe, reflected, glassed. And we should be included, but we're not. It's not our house. The light doesn't smash us in the face or tilt us backwards out of our lives. Still, the column of garden hardly holds the story together, and pomegranate seeds spill loose across the tiles and up the doorpost. So many mirrors you'd think would give a point of view. They don't. They just ferment sunlight into three species of jam. The seeds of light will stick in our teeth. The paste of light wedge unswallowed in our throats. A flame spurts in the toothy grate, but the soul stays dark. She's bent, the soul, steeped in her confiture of shadows. Leans naked, bruised, peripheral, half-erased. She's trying to pray. She's trying to wash. She's shivering and cold. She has understood that never in this life will she be clean. <coughs> Warren's poem is written <coughs> Excuse me. Warren's poem is written in three verse tercets, groups of three very short lines. Each stanza is systematically indented so that the longest extent of the stanza's last line is roughly 30 to 35 pikas from the beginning of the first one. The lines are very heavily enjambed, as poets say. That is, the line endings don't coincide with major breaks in the syntax, like clause or sentence boundaries, or those between subject and verb, or verb and object. This allows an, object, an observation such as still, the column of garden, line break, hardly holds the story, stanza break, together, to play with its own form in lines that hardly hold the sentence together, as it were. But the whole observation concerns both the structure of the painting and the coherence of the writer's apprehension of it. It comes to seem to invoke the necessary architectonic coherence of the poem itself. It is as if every poem that faced a painting saw it as if behind glass that made the surface into something of a mirror for the gazing poem. A photograph can always elicit the kind of interpretive question that a painting or a drawing will not. That is, not so much one like, what does this picture mean? But rather, more concretely, what was happening in front of the lens of this camera at precisely the time it was taken that resulted in this image here now? A poem can provide its own fictive answers to this factually answerable question. Consider this image by the great American photographer Walker Evans (coughs) called Lexington Avenue Subway, 1941. (coughs) It's one of a very large series, also represented in the gallery's holdings, of glimpses of New York life taken in the subways with a small camera hidden in his vest over a period of 25 years. There's a poem about it with the same title by the poet and man of letters, J.D. McClatchy. It does not brood about whether these two dozing figures were traveling companions or merely fellow travelers. Instead, McClatchy's poem knows what they are, and he starts with certain statement, which is only then followed by questioning. The figures are a young man, the he of the narrated first stanza of 16 unrhyming lines, and a shadowy but substantial older version of himself the dark angel of age, who speaks the italicized lines of the second one. And on the way to somewhere else, he can't think of the stop. The stops are quiet, strangers turning in the light. He's leaned back against the window, against the glazed leaves, the chips of sea blue and sky gold, the platform's map of boundaries, the rain changes while through the great, the upper world on its own iron wheels is sidetracked toward history's fenced-in yard, and shut his eyes to imagine that years from now he is sitting beside himself, the dream's train of thought pulling the figure forward from all the disappointments. There he is. He'll ask this nerveless, dark angel of age again what he did, what he did wrong. The answer. How could you know what your father would never admit, what your mother would never accept? How could you know their own fears were your childbed, your small high window onto the city? The unwelcome advice, the useless clarity, the small passions, how confusing all the ideas of others turned out to be. The woman you married the other men she came to love more, the only son you haven't seen because he wanted any life but the one you gave him to throw away. The parts have been worked out for us, and you pause as if by accident and try to recall just what it was she said in the doorway. Was she angry? What... Might have been an outside narrator's traditional opening interrogation of the whole photograph. You know, what are you a picture of? Who are these people? Who are you? Becomes an internal one in the second stanza. There too, <clears throat> interpretive uncertainties appear in appear in the reading, not of images but of life itself. For example, McClatchy's ambiguous reference of the she and the unrecallable. What it was she said in the doorway. And finally, there is the matter of the almost naive ekphrastic question. Do these two people know each other? It was avoided originally in the poem, but its unstated ghost returns with our realization that the young man cannot know the other personages there. And the older one, looking down and inwardly, knows all too much about the other, the presence of his own past. I'm now going to conclude by reading two short and one longish poems of my own. The summer of 1948, Edward Hopper spent uh, recovering from illness and surgery. In September, not having painted for nearly a year, he did a drawing of a shop window. His wife, Jo, grateful for his being able to start work again, observed that it was chock full of promise. The promise was fulfilled later that month in the painting called 7 A.M. Gail Levin, in her book on Hopper, quotes his wife's journal entry on the painting as concluding with a slightly enigmatic sentence about the painting's own enigma. What kind of stoic He doesn't know. Can't do more about contents of window. Would complicate. Same for the preliminary drawing, which I'd seen reproduced. <clears throat> I knew none of this background <clears throat> when I wrote the following sonnet to try to help myself deal with a notion of uh, what is unshown in the painting. What is shown, of course, is intriguingly inconclusive. The largest visible object is the un- unreadable clock facing across the store, not the window shopper a few uninterpretable bottles, a glimpse of the side of a cash register. The stage set like exterior greenery occupying the left hand 40% of the canvas also invites and resists the inquiring gaze, but in a very different way. The poem is called Edward Hopper's 7 AM. The morning seems to have no light to spare for these close, silent, neighboring dark trees. But too much brightness in low-lying glare for middling truths, such as whose premises these are, and why just here, and what we might expect to make of a shop window shelf displaying last year's styles of dark and light. Here at this moment, morning is most itself, before the geometric shadows, more substantial almost than what casts them, pale into whatever later light will be. What happens here? What is the sort of store whose windows frame such generality? Meaning is up for grabs, but not for sale. I haven't mentioned so far one trivial way very trivial, literal way in which a poem can be like a picture. It can look like, or in its written or printed form, seem to make up one, a silhouette at least. There were <clears throat> Hellenistic Greek patterned poems in the shape of wings or of an axe or an altar. And uh, these were reflected in Renaissance versions of them. Uh, the English, great English poet George Herbert's famous altar and wings, both of which are poems in his book. And even, um, you probably most of you will remember from Alice in Wonderland, The Mouse's Tale, which is, of course, printed in descending-type fonts curling back like this. So the story in rhyme verse is told in a tail shape, T-A-I-L shape. One summer, 32 years ago, I set out to write some of these by drawing an outline... A silhouette outline, filling it in with typewriter X's. This is before I had or anybody I knew had a computer, typewriter Xs, to determine line length, and then staring at the image, uh, sometimes composed for weeks before I could know only what the poem in that shape or occupying or conjured up by or about that shape was really going to be. In this case, the contour was that of an Etruscan cup bought at a flea market in Rome uh, almost 40 years ago. Black, the kind of ware called Buccaro, uh undecorated. It had been cracked and mended. I loved its shape, but uh, I, alas, brooded too about, is this a fake or not? And, uh, and then I, knowing all sorts of stories about genuineness and art, said, isn't it fake of you to wonder if it's fake or not? You find it beautiful or not? That's the answer. So these two questions hung in balance. As a matter of fact, it isn't a fake. An etruscologist I knew finally told me, when I told him where I had bought it, at the Porta Portese flea market, and how little I'd paid for it, he said, it had to be real. It had to be stolen from a dig. I didn't know that at the time. It was a funny Uh, uh, it had been cracked and then mended, and I wondered what its history was. And uh, you'll see in the poem I raise that question. Also, when I say shellac record, uh, phonograph records before plastic 33 RPM discs, uh, back in the days when they were 78 RPM or uh, even early, 33s, were made of a breakable shellac stuff, so phonograph records broke all the time if you dropped them. Mm. Uh, The cup uh, has incised bands on its black surface, and I sought to reflect these in and where they were placed by, you'll see the rhyming couplet in uppercase letters. Also, I found that I... Couldn't ignore Keats's celebrated Grecian urn poem as well, so it creeps in at the end. So, I've given up caring whether you're genuine or not, now that I know what you've been through. Slowly shortening moments, of course, but the harsh snap of the speeded-up instant and the rape of the smooth black surface like a cracked shellac record are authentic enough. While you say... I, too, was earth once. Still I yielded up forms possible in me to turn mere cup. Your fault, your cracked base, cannot be seen from where I look and try to read your heart. And what you say is true enough for mortals or for earthen gods. What bears the weight of this so pretentious crown? Is it mere mire, column of common or even rare clay that carries a proud cup so dry, so empty now? Lo, what the potter twists on his flat turning wheel is his idea, and a cup or an image, a poem or body that turns beneath my hand, O oh beauty, is no less true than you. Uh, the truth and the beauty from the Keats, of course. Uh, You'll also notice that what I was trying to do here was to have the poem refer to its own shape when it starts to narrow. It seems to be aware that it is narrowing to a column, etc. I want to conclude this afternoon with a poem of mine which is both about a painting and about being about one, in other words, about this whole subject. First, the image. Claude Monet's painting of 1867 of a scene at the Saint-Siméon farm in his native Normandy, this is in the Fogg Museum, Harvard, engages a favorite motif of his at the time. It was subtitled "Effet de Neige," which means "snow effect," and the scene calls up the remarks of an unidentified contemporary commentator translated by Andrew Forge in his remarkable book on Monet, who describes an early counter with Monet in the open air, observing that we perceive a footstove, then an easel, and then a gentleman swathed in three overcoats, his hands in gloves, his face half frozen. It was Monet studying a snow effect. Art has its brave soldiers. I'd been engaged on several occasions while seeing the picture from time to time in the Fogg Museum by the small white brush stroke, angled at about 45 degrees from right to left at the very end of the road, I think. You can see it even in the slide. Uh, uh, It lies very high on the painted surface. Uh, This poem meditates not merely upon the painting, but on the possible rationale of poetic ecstasy itself, and in it, that brushstroke, its high, almost gleaming white, its almost palpable presence, became somehow terribly important for me. I went back and back and visited that brushstroke. The poem is a strangely notional dialogue between the faculties of observation and of discourse, standing in pretty much for painting and poetry. Uh, certainly, Images have to put up with a great deal. Much is said of them, about them, and they have to suffer in silence. This poem acknowledges the problem of having to be spoken for. Uh, the main speaker of the poem is called saying, that is, for language and poetry. And he's, he's energetically ekphrastic and at the same time conscious of another personage in the poem, whose name is seeing. You'll see what seeing says. Uh, saying is implicitly skeptical about the authenticity even of poetic language in the realm of the truly visual. Sing's own response to this awareness helps to shape the ways in which the painting is looked at. I should uh, perhaps footnote just a few words here that will come up. The names given by the speaker to the two figures on the road, Mère and Père Chose, uh, that's the French idiom for what would be in our English "mom and pop, what's his face." Similarly, saying's name for himself and his mute consort seeing, uh, he says "doctor, doctor," and Madame Machin employs employs a slightly toner idiom, also meaning "what's his name," but what you may call it, etc. The great Boig mentioned in it was a huge black occluding presence barring Per way in Ibsen's poetic drama. And the word obvious that comes in at the end occurs here in full consciousness of its original Latin derivation. It comes from ob and via, means standing in the way of, blocking the path of or toward. And since the poem otherwise discusses itself and its genre, little more should be said save that it was my own effort to understand what I'd done in the poem quite a few years later that I eventually had to write a book about poems and works of art. But I will simply end this afternoon's talk by reading it. A Fée de Neige, and it's dedicated to Andrew Forge. Saying, figures of light and dark, these two are walking the winter road from the Saint-Simeon farm, toward something that the world is pointing toward, at the white place of the roads vanishing, between the vertex that the far-lit gray of tree-dividing sky finally comes down to, and the wide arrowhead the road itself comes up with as a means to its own end. Père and Mère Chose could be in conversation, or else, like us, sunk into some long gaze unreadable from behind, they are well down the road, but not yet far enough ahead for any part of them we can make out to have been claimed by what we see of what they move against, or through, or by, or toward. Toward? That seems to be the whispered question that images of roads, whether composed by the design of our own silent eyes or by the loud hand of painting, always puts. Where does this all end? What is the vanishing point, after all, when finally one reaches the ordinary wide scene which begins to reach out into its own vanishing from there, toward, and seeing says, Saying says, yes, you'd want that said, if you want anything said at all, which I still doubt. The place the road ends that patch of white paint marked with a dark stroke from the left, encroached upon from the right by far trees. That white place sits at the limit of a kind of world that only you and I can know. Les deux choses, mère and père, undreaming even of fields of meaning like these, such as the world created by that square, oh, 56 by 56 centimeters, that the height of the canvas cuts out of its width, Unfair to mark that square, perhaps, where Mère and Père chose to walk out of it that have to pass out of the picture of life, as it were, out through the back of the picture at the patch of white at the end of the road. Even if they're staring down the long course of the gray slush of things, how can they get the point of how a world like theirs ends? From what distant point of vision would their world not remain comfortably coextensive with everything? How could they know? What can we know of whatever picture plane against which we have been projected? What? And seeing says, oh, I know the snow. The effective snow of observation lying on the ground given by nature will soak into it. Wheel tracks entrench themselves in snow. Yet painted traces of those deep cuts lie thickly upon the high white spread over the buried earth. Shadows keep piling up as surfaces are muffled into silence that refuses to pick up even the quickening of wind in dense bare branches or the ubiquitous snaps of ice cracking in the hidden air. Silence, your way of being, your way of seeing still has to be intoned is in a lonely place of absorbing snow, itself to be seen. What you know is only manifest when I am heard, and what I say is solely a matter of getting all that right. Seeing. Saying. I know. I've drifted somewhat from the distant heart of the matter of snow here. Both of us have grasped that patch of white at the very end of the road— as it sits there like an eventual sphinx of questioning substance or a sort of boig of Normandy. Seeing. Saying. Yes, the obvious standing in the way of the truth. A white close at the end of distance, the two shows people might see to be the opening out of the road into a way across wide whited fields in a way unframed at last by trees, or might see as the masonry of a far barn, just where the road curves sharply right and appears from here to be overcome by what it seems to have moved toward. In any event, the end of the painted road ends up in white, in paint representative of too much truth to do much more than lie high on this surface, guarding the edge of Père and Mère Chose's Square of World, even as they, now that you notice it, have just moved past the edge of that other square cut from the right side of the painting, the world of that wise white silent patch of ultimate paint. You are grateful, I know, for just such compensations, that neither the motionless farm couple trudging toward the still dab of white that oscillates from point to point of meaning, open, closed, nor indeed the bit of paint itself can know of. And seeing, saying, Mère and Père Chause are walking away from the two of us, Doctor and Madame Machin, who stand away from their profundity of surface and saying, concludes the truth blocking the path of the obvious thank you
0: this has been a National Gallery of Art podcast